Hello, all you opera fans out there in podcast world. This is Jonathan Dean, dramaturg, supertitle guy, and inveterate opera nerd, here to introduce the music of The Turn of the Screw. This is our first Listen to This podcast, and the goal of this series is to help prepare your ears for the amazing music you're going to hear when you come to Seattle Opera. This fall, just in time for Halloween, we bring you one of the most terrifying operas ever composed, The Turn of the Screw. The Turn of the Screw is a little miracle. It's small, it's brief, it's intense, and it's also perfect. What do I mean by that, musically speaking? Not a note is out of place. All the music of this opera happens for a good reason. There's no excess, nothing that could be cut. It's exactly the music needed to tell this wonderfully creepy ghost story. Music that will haunt you. that will make your skin crawl and make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And music that conveys a grief too deep for words, the frenzied sorrow of abandoned children. Although it doesn't require vast forces, the turn of the screw is every bit as intense and powerful as great big grand operas such as Aida or Porgy and Bess. There's no chorus in the turn of the screw, and the orchestra is tiny. There are six characters in the cast, each with distinct musical personalities. The main character is the governess. She has no name beyond that. She's an inexperienced and naive young woman whose natural setting is, uh, let's call her, anxious. If things go wrong, what shall I do? Who can I ask with none of my kind to talk to? The governess is one of the great soprano roles, really a tour de force for a great singing actress. She is put in charge of this big British country house, along with our mezzo, the housekeeper. That's a character called Mrs. Gross. Mrs. Gross is also easily overwhelmed. The governess has gone to Bly, where this story takes place, to look after a pair of young orphans, brother and sister, named Miles and Flora. 
Flora, who's maybe eight years old, is sung by an adult, but Miles, who's a tween, is sung by a boy soprano. Here's Miles practicing his Latin lesson. His little sister, who's bouncing off the walls because nobody's paying any attention to her, chirps in with high notes, repeating the last word of each phrase Miles sings. So those are four of our six characters in The Turn of the Screw. The other two characters are ghosts, and I'll introduce them in a minute. Benjamin Britten composed this opera in 1954 to a libretto adapted by his friend Mifanwi Piper from the brilliant novella by Henry James. It's a spooky, haunted house story, and so much more. The story has been interpreted many ways over the years, some people think it's about mental illness. Others have found it an allegory about the relationship between the church and the public, and many interpret it as having to do with sexual taboos and their violation. The genius of the story is how ambiguous it is. It means all of these things and more because the story doesn't actually say what it means. If it's about anything, it's about how not talking about a problem only makes it worse. When Britton and Piper set out to transform Henry James's novella into an opera, they said they didn't want to limit the story by interpreting it. They wanted their opera to preserve all of this wonderful, infuriating ambiguity. So, what to do about the ghosts? Two important characters in The Turn of the Screw are ghosts, Peter Quint and Miss Jessel. In the book, where they don't have any lines, it's not really clear whether they even exist or are simply figments of the central character's imagination. But there's no narrator in an opera. Operas live in what the characters sing on stage. So these ghosts do have voices and they have lines. Just listen carefully to a line from the big duet the ghosts sing at the beginning of the second act. Just because they sing lines doesn't mean they really exist. For instance, that melody is not exclusively theirs. It was originally music for the governess. The ghosts of Quint and Jessel may simply be the worst nightmare of the governess, who finds herself battling these ghosts for the souls of the children entrusted to her care. Whoa, that's hardcore. You're thinking, well, it becomes even more intense because of this perfect music, which surrounds and suffocates the poor governess. Just listen one more time to that tune which the ghosts sing in what I'm calling her nightmare. (laughs) 
That melody has become known as the screw theme. Yes, it's not the catchiest tune you've ever heard. That's on purpose. With a catchier melody, Britain wouldn't be able to trap the governess in the claustrophobic nightmare of this story. The idea is both story and music turn the screw on the governess, bit by bit. That turn of the screw, by the way, is a metaphor borrowed from an ancient torture device. The pressure builds, little by little, scene by scene. First there's a ghost, then there's another ghost, then the first ghost is coming for child number one, then the second ghost is coming for child number two, and with each additional turn of the screw, the intensity increases until finally the person snaps. Musically, the best way to recreate this effect is with one of Britain's favorite forms, theme, and variations. That duet of the ghosts is simply the clearest statement of the opera's principal theme. We've been hearing that theme all night. We heard it when the governess first got on a train in London to come to the country house where the children live. at night when everyone is supposed to be asleep but she senses that the ghosts are freely flitting about the house. same theme, listen in the bass, as the governess stalks toward her inevitable confrontation with the ghosts. an extended musical theme like that and wringing every possible change out of it in a set of variations. You may know Britain's wonderful Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, which has the same structure, but that piece takes its theme from the great 17th century British composer Henry Purcell. The screw theme, which Britain writes for this very 20th century opera, is actually his sneaky response to what's known as the School of Twelve-Tone Composition, or the Second Viennese School. That screw theme contains all 12 notes of a complete Western chromatic scale, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, plus all the sharp and flat notes in between. In 12-tone music, the idea is to avoid setting up one of those notes as more important than any other. There isn't supposed to be a key. Instead of creating musical structure following the ancient laws of Western tonality, 
In 12-tone music, the structure comes from fixing the 12 notes in a specific order. Now, Britten was not a 12-tone composer. He was not a follower of Schoenberg or Webern, but he uses that technique of fixing the 12 notes in a specific order for his screw theme, and it has the dramatic effect of completely disorienting the poor governess. The first time she hears the notes of the screw theme, at the very beginning of the opera when she first takes the job, Britten's little orchestra introduces the notes one by one until all 12 notes are sounding at the same time, and it makes a dreadful noise. It's a marvelous foreshadowing of her mental state at the end of her journey. When those ghosts sang that theme in the passage we listened to a moment ago, they concluded their duet with this bizarre setting of words which Mifonwee Piper stole from William Butler Yeats. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. And that's the other musical idea you'll hear again and again throughout this opera, sort of a photographic negative of the governess's screw theme. You'll recognize this second theme, let's call it the Ceremony of Innocence theme, because of its very distinct melodic shape and its bitonal harmony. That means the melody outlines two very different chords which clash because they're too close to one another. A metaphor, if you like, for a well-meaning governess who's living in the same house with two ghosts who don't mean well at all. Here's that Ceremony of Innocence theme, sung when the anxious governess wonders what motivated her to accept this job in the first place. This second theme asks that question, why did she come? But the music doesn't really answer it. There is an obvious answer, but it's one the governess can't quite admit to herself. She was deeply attracted by the children's guardian, the man who hired her. He's not her type. Maybe that's why we hear this curious little bitonal theme when she's alone in the park fantasizing about him moments before she first sees a ghost. And when the ghosts finally take shape and voice, 
guess which tune they use, our little bitonal friend, the Ceremony of Innocence, of course. Here's a bit of the famous Cantilena, when the voice of the dead valet, Peter Quint, calls the name of the little boy who used to be his friend, Miles. One more, just to make sure you can recognize that theme in its various manifestations. Near the end, the governess admits to herself that she has failed in the task she set out to accomplish. innocence was really at stake, that of these sweet, helpless children, or that of their governess? One of the many questions you'll want to discuss after the intense experience of the turn of the screw. I hope your ears are now ready for at least some of the music you'll hear when you come to Seattle Opera for Britain's The Turn of the Screw. This score is small, but it's potent, and it's perfect. With this great music, you're in for an unforgettable night in the theater. Hope to see you there. Musical examples taken from the 1994 Seattle Opera archival recording of The Turn of the Screw, starring Lauren Flanagan as the governess, Joyce Castle as Mrs. Gross, Fraser Walters as Miles, Cynthia Seaton as Flora, Linda Pavelka as Miss Jessel, and Peter Gazaris as Peter Quint. The orchestra conducted by Richard Bradshaw. <laughs> 